Well, good evening and welcome back to our series on the prophets. As you remember, we are uh, looking at the prophets kind of thematically. And what I mean by that is instead of just focusing on a specific prophet, we'll do that a couple of times, but I, I've really decided that you can get to know more of the prophets if we just talk about some of the themes that they talked about. So that's what we are, are doing. And as usual, there's our number for questions. So feel free to text your questions in wherever you may be, online, whatever, if it's during the class, we'd love to uh, hear your questions. Let me say a prayer for us and we will dive right in. Lord, thank you for the mercies that you've given to us. We're grateful that we have the opportunity to gather, to study your word, we can do so freely. We thank you for the freedoms that we have. I pray for the leaders of our nation that you would turn their hearts toward you. Father, you are sovereign, and I pray that we would be willing participants in your plan. I pray for peace, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this lesson, one of the themes that you'll see running through the prophets from time to time are what are called apocalyptic visions. Apocalyptic visions. This is a representation of one of the visions from the book of Revelations. And it's not the only place, though, that you see apocalyptic visions in the Bible. So most of what I'm going to show you comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Apocalyptic, the word means a revelation. So the title of the book in the New Testament is the Apocalypse of John. An apocalypse means a revelation. And so the idea of an apocalyptic vision, we, we've turned it into a uh-oh, bad things are gonna happen because in the book of Revelation, bad things happen, right? But the word, an apocalypse, just means a, a revealing of something. So it's like, I didn't know this and you revealed it to me, that's a revelation. And so apocalyptic visions aren't really visions uh, of bad things or good things, they're just revealing things you would not have known otherwise. Meaning you couldn't deduce this, you couldn't figure this out. It has been revealed to you. But what makes apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic prophecy has come to be known as not just God revealing things like, would just say something through the prophets, like if you don't repent, the Babylonians are coming. Okay, well that's a revelation, but Apocalyptic visions are usually revelations using vivid images. Most of the time they're pretty wild images, but they do have meaning. For example, this is a picture of Satan and the Antichrist. Well, wait a minute, no it's not. It's actually a picture of a dragon and a multi-headed beast that's coming out of the sea. Yes, that's the vision, but when you decode it, you realize, ah, all the elements of this vision, you're trying to tell me that Satan and the Antichrist will team up to do things at the end of time. And so that is an image that you need to be able to decode. It's actually, we do this all the time. It's not hard for you. You could decode every one of those visions, every one of those images. And, and if you think about it, I know you don't stop to think about it, you know exactly what every one of those uh, images means. Now, the only difference is, 
you aren't used to seeing a multi-headed red dragon. And you're like, so what does that mean? Well, once you know, it's like, ah, Satan. Okay, I got that, I see that image. And so it's like telling a revelation, a story, if you will, or conveying information through images. The Bible conveys information to us through what's called narrative or story. Think the Gospels. Jesus went here and he said that. Jesus went here and he healed the blind man. That's a, that's a narrative way of, that's the way we usually communicate information to each other. Poetry, like the Psalms or whatever your, whoever your favorite poet is, that's a way of communicating ideas to you but not in a narrative form, it's in a different kind of form, right? Proverbs, like the book of Proverbs, or sayings. I'm sure every one of you can remember certain sayings of your grandparents. Uh, they're Proverbs. You know, my, uh, when we would come in from playing, my grandparents lived on a farm, uh, and we were particularly dirty. My grandmother said, if you, if you lay down with the hogs, you're gonna get up muddy. You know, it's sort of like so... Yes, you're dirty because you've been hanging around with hogs. Yeah, whatever. Bottom line is, I never actually understood that one, but it's a proverb. It's a piece of wisdom, you know? So there are a lot of ways to communicate ideas, and we use them all the time. These aren't unique to the Bible. Those are images that they are apocalyptic in the sense that it's a vision, it's an image that conveys an idea to you, and you know exactly what they are. So when we get into the Bible, the Bible uses a lot of apocalyptic visions. And these are visions that have their own little standard rules. In fact, in the ones I'm gonna show you, you're gonna see repeated some of the very same visions. And it's the same idea or the same meaning. So I wanna look at several prophets and I wanna do it in a kind of a chronological order, basically. In fact, it will be. This will be in chronological order through history of when God chose to use images, dreams, visions to communicate to his people. Didn't do that all the time, but he did it some of the time. Probably the, uh, one of the oldest is from the book of Job. And this is a revelation, but it doesn't have crazy images in it, but it's still apocalyptic. Now, I'll tell you what I mean. Let me read this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, think angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. So we're in, we're not on earth. We're in the throne room of God, where God dwells. And Satan, the adversary, it's not a name, it's a title, uh, the accuser, the adversary came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, uh, where have you been? And he said, I've been going up and down through the earth and walking up and down on it. So he's not on the earth. He's in God's throne room. We would say in heaven. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. Now the rest of the book of Job is not apocalyptic, revelatory. It's a reality TV show, right? Job actually has real stuff happen to him. He has real friends that come to talk to him. And all the way through, you see it. Why is this here? 
This is here so that you and I can understand what's happening behind that story. Something we would not have known. We are not privy to what happens in God's throne room in heaven. We don't see into the spiritual realm. And so we get a glimpse into the spiritual realm to understand what's happening in the physical realm. If you read the book of Job without the beginning, this chapter one, and without chapter 38 following, you would say, this is a sad, sad, strange story, and I have no idea what it means, right? It would be like existential literature. You read it, and all you know is, I feel bad, but I have no idea what that meant. You know, I mean, it would be really weird. But with this revelation of what's going on in the spiritual realm, it begins to make sense. And so that's what apocalyptic literature is. It's revealing things to you you would not have known, and it's almost exclusively revealing things from the spiritual realm. That is a piece of reality. This is what we believe. We believe there is more than the universe that you see that there's more than the, than the physical universe. We are more than the components of our bodies and the synapses of our brain, that we have a piece of us, a soul, that participates in more than this, that outlasts this universe, that is eternal. In other words, there is a piece of us that is literally the breath of God in us, and we too are part of a spiritual realm. We don't see into that spiritual realm. We will one day, but we do not now. Revelations, uh, apocalyptic visions, are God revealing things from that realm to help make sense of what's going on in this world. So watch as we go through, and I think you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Here's uh, Ephesians, kind of makes this point. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. And this is kind of a side point, but look what he takes to be a reality. We do not wrestle against just things in this universe, flesh and blood, material things. That's not our real battle, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. In other words, there's more to this universe. This is a fundamentally Judeo-Christian belief. There is more than what you see. Materialism is the philosophy of life that all that exists is what you can experience. And it's all temporal, and it all has an end, and there's no more to life than what you can see and feel and touch and taste. That's what materialism really is, which then leads to the idea of what we call materialism in our world, and that is, well, if that's all there is, I want as much stuff as I can get. That makes sense? Hence, the idea of materialistic people are people that want a lot of stuff. Why? Because that's all there is. Christians would say, no, actually, Jesus told me that I should trade my stuff in for things that last forever and build up treasure in heaven. Maybe my time, maybe my talents, maybe my money, maybe my things. You know, I should trade in things that don't last for things that do last. You see the radical difference in those two points of view. So this is uh, you know, kind of scenes. You'll see a lot of art that gives you 
tries to capture images into the spiritual realm. But God chooses to portray the spiritual realm not by just prose descriptive, but by images. And the idea is it's not intended to be precise. Like, okay, in God's throne room, it's 25 feet by 30 feet, and he just put in some new shaved plank floors, and they just look gorgeous. You know, it's not intended to be that precise. It's intended to give you an overall impression of what it is, a feeling, an image in your head. So let's walk through a little bit of history, and we're gonna just start in the Assyrian Empire and how God, I would like for you to see there are three big things that historically God has communicated to his people through apocalyptic literature. Three big ideas. One of them happened in this era. So the Assyrian Empire is 10th century to 7th century, but basically in 722, the kingdom of Israel, we've covered this before, but repetition is good because when you get through with this, you're gonna go, oh, I know exactly when the 10 tribes of Israel were lost. It was 722. Everybody knows that when the Assyrians invaded. Sargon II destroyed the northern kingdom. So basically, bad things have happened. Isaiah is living here in uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. He's actually in Jerusalem with King Hezekiah. And the northern kingdom is defeated. And I mean, tons of Jews are killed by the Assyrians. They deport them. They don't conquer the southern kingdom at this time. And so God speaks to Isaiah and he wants to communicate a message to Judah. Northern kingdom, gone. He wants to communicate a message to them because this is a bad time. They have turned away from God. They're following idols, particularly in the northern kingdom. Hezekiah is more faithful. The northern kingdom for over 100 years has been just departed from God. He sent many prophets to them. But then he sends Isaiah and he wants to send a powerful message to Judah. And this is, this is what, these are the visions that Isaiah sees and what did Isaiah do every Sunday? Told these visions to people. This was what he preached. This is what God showed me. Instead of saying, thus says the Lord, this is what I saw that God showed me. And let's talk about what it means. So he starts like this at the very beginning. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. I had a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. So he's seeing this vision of God on a throne and his, his robe filling the whole temple of God. He said, and above him stood seraphim. And so we know of two names for angels, cherubim, cherubs, and seraphs, or seraphim. And so he said, I saw these angels, and we call them, he says, seraphim. Each one of them had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. Now, let me stop there for a second. Is that really what angels look like? Maybe, but probably not. Does Satan look like a red dragon with the heads? No, probably not. Why present the image that way? Because it means something. That's symbolic of something. Does that make sense? It's like those symbols I showed you originally up there. It's like, well, why does it have a skull inside a diamond? Well, 
if you weren't from our culture, you'd say, well, that's weird. I have no idea what that means. You go, oh, skull, death. That means don't drink this. This is poison, right? That's this little symbol we put on things that you should not, you should not eat this. It's poison. Well, if you don't know what a skull means, it, it's cryptic, right? But once you know, it's like, oh, well, that's obvious. Well, same with them. So I don't know that angels have these wings, but it does mean something. But that's not my subject right now. Let's keep moving. So you see this vision, and he says, and they called to one another. And this is interesting. Why is God revealing this? This is the point. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hands he had a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Well, let's just step back. You know, 30,000 feet. What's going on in this vision? Well, it's pretty easy to see what's being communicated, I think. So if you know what's going on, you have a people who have been flirting with other gods and they haven't been faithful and they just watched the northern kingdom receive judgment, basically, in the form of the Assyrians. And so what is God trying to say to them? Well, first of all, you get the image that, okay, God is like serious. He is in the spiritual realm. He has these angels serving him. His voice is like thunder. The whole temple fills with smoke. He's like, okay, he's an awesome God. This is not buddy Jesus here, right? Like this is an awesome God. But what do the seraphim say? Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. He is set apart. He, is, uh, he is, has no uncleanness. And what does Isaiah say? I do have a lot of uncleanness. What does he mean by uncleanness? Has he laid down and wrestled with the pigs? No, they've been flirting with other gods. I'm unclean. I'm not faithful. In the scriptures, clothes, I'll show you this in a second, uh, in one of the other visions, clothes are an image of your faithfulness. If you got dirty clothes, you're not very faithful. That's just an image. It's sort of like the skull in the middle of the little triangle that means, oh, don't drink this, it'll kill you. Well, clothes are an image. White, clean clothes, good faithfulness. Dirty clothes, not so faithful. What does he say? I'm a man who dishonors God, not just in my mind, but with my lips. In other words, I've praised other gods. And so the angel comes and said, and I want to purify you. Now, did he touch him with coals? No, of course, he didn't touch him with coals. But this is the vision, right, of what he's seeing is that I had to be purified so that I could also be holy. Because remember, the commandment in the law of Moses is be holy because I am holy. In other words, be devoted to me. Don't be unclean by following uh, other things. So this vision is basically a lot about the holiness of God. And so I want you to think about this. You're going to see this more and more. So the people in Judah are thinking to themselves, wow, who is going to save us from the Assyrians when they come back next year? Because they do yearly campaigns and they would come and they'd conquer. 
how are we gonna do it? Maybe we need to get a treaty with the king of Assyria. Maybe we need to go down to Egypt and get the Pharaoh and let's do a treaty with him and maybe he will protect us. Maybe we need to hire some mercenaries. Uh, maybe we need more defense spending, right? Maybe we need some Stinger missiles. I don't know, we need to get some artillery shells. We gotta do something. So what's God conveying to Isaiah? He doesn't come in a vision and say, I see Egypt being your savior. That's not what he says. Uh, I think you guys should learn Kung Fu. That will help you when they get here. No, what does he say? Your problem is not an Assyrian problem. Your problem is a holiness problem. Make sense? In other words, I'm giving you this vision to tell you what you need to know, and that is, if you wanna know how to solve your problems, turn back to God. And then further, he goes on and he says this. God says, uh, when you spread out your hands, meaning you worship me, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. In other words, righteousness. Be faithful, do what I've told you to do. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Even though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they'll become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This is an image saying, you think you have a physical problem with the Assyrians. Let me tell you what this looks like in the heavenly realms. You have a faith problem and you are not being faithful. Well, how do you mean? You oppress the fatherless. You don't plead the case of the widow. You're not doing the things I do. I'm a God of justice, go be just. I'm a God of compassion, go be compassionate. So this message obviously isn't just for them. You could be preaching this today to us, couldn't you? You said, look, you think you got a lot of problems in the world, but honestly, let me give you the bigger picture, the spiritual picture, the real picture. You know, because God's saying, this is the real reality of it. The issue is, you need to turn back to me. You need to separate yourself, that's holy, become holy, separate yourself from the evil, the injustice, the idolatry, those things in the world, and come cling to me. So Isaiah's message to them is, in your time of difficulty, what you need is to return to God. And that's this image. And that's the point, is that God is holy and you should need holy. You have soiled yourself with injustice and with other gods. Return to me, repent. We call that repentance. That's the word repent, means turn around and come back. In Revelation, uh, here's, a, here's another great image, and I, want to, I just wanna plant a seed here for a minute. Uh, this is John, about mm, 90 AD, so seven, I forgot to tell you, about around 700 BC for Isaiah, 700 years later, almost 800 years later, here's John, he sees a vision. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. Same imagery, isn't it? And he sat there, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow. In other words, you're just seeing this awesome, vivid color and sense. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and on them were 24 elders. 
clothed in, oh, white garments, faithful people with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and pealing of thunder. This is an awesome God. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And around the throne on each side are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So obviously, do they look like this? No, but every one of these is telling you something. Uh, Full of eyes front and behind. And uh, one of them had a face like a lion. The other was like an ox. The third face of a man and the fourth an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings. What are these? Seraphim. These are angels. Well, wait, I thought they looked this way here and they looked that way there. They look the way they look. These are just descriptions to tell you something about them, right? He says, four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around, day and night never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This scene, you should just read chapter four. It is like unbelievable vision of God's awesome majesty, but once again, his holiness. What was happening in 700 BC is the people said, we got an Assyrian problem. What was happening in 90 AD, we got a Roman problem. And God's saying in both cases, no, you actually have a holiness issue. Now you come to me and that is the solution to your problems. But I think, I just think this idea of God's holiness, I want you to hold that thought for a minute because I want to talk about that when we get to the end. But that's one of the things that apocalyptic visions communicate is to remind us of God's separation, set apartness. That's what the word holy means is to be, you're set apart for something different. Uh, And what is he set apart from? We set apart from sin and evil and idolatry and injustice and lack of compassion and unforgiveness. All those things he set apart from those. And he calls us to walk away from those as well. So the holiness of God is one of the things that is revealed about God that gives us perspective on what's going on in our lives. So I would recommend to you uh, Packer's Pursuit of Holiness. That's just a book. I mean, it's a human book. It's, you know, it's not inspired, but it's really inspirational because it's like, hey, let's not forget that we should be pursuing holiness. We should be about separating ourselves from the things, from the worldly things, the materialistic things, the temporal things of this world. Well, time goes on. Southern kingdom of Judah does indeed follow Jesus, uh, follow God for a while. But then another generation and another generation. And one thing I want you to remember is you're saying, how could these Israelites, God could give them this vision in 700 and then they become unfaithful. You know what it's called? Kids, right? It's not the same generation. So we're gonna go from 700 to 586. So we have just moved a little over 114 years in history. So we're now talking about the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of the people that Isaiah talked to. And they have not remembered. Their parents haven't done a good job of passing the faith down, have they? The faith has to be passed to every generation. So they find themselves not being very holy. They find themselves participating and they also have a problem. Their problem comes in the form of people called Babylonians. They're 
they're bad news. They beat the Assyrians and they've decided that they're gonna conquer Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC conquers Judah, conquers Jerusalem, tears down Solomon's temple that he built you know, 300, a little over 300 years before, stood for 300 years, tears it down, strips all the gold, takes it with him, puts all, just flattens the place. Like, you know, not only am I gonna conquer you, I conquered your God. I just leveled your God's temple. And so they get taken away into this area of Babylon. This is modern day Iraq, okay? So, uh, taken away into, into exile, is what they called it. The prophet Ezekiel, Old Testament prophet, lived during this time, and Ezekiel is with the exiles. He's here. He's living in Babylon, and God sends him some visions. Well, what do these people need? What, what is their situation now? Is they think at this point, they know they've been unfaithful, I mean, they know that, oh yeah, my grandfather told me that Isaiah told him we were called to be holy and I guess we really haven't done it and wow, you know, you get the wake up call, right? It's like, oh, Babylonians came, they conquered us, you know what? This is because, this is what God said 100 years ago, he said that, I read it, Isaiah wrote it down. And so they realize this, but they're struggling at this point because they've seen the Assyrians conquer Israel, They've seen the Babylonians conquer Judah. And what do they need to be reminded of? At this point, they're a little worried that our story is over. And fair enough, we were not faithful to God. He gave us many, 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 many chances. And here we are. And I guess that's it. They need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God. That God is still king. He's still on his throne. As powerful as the Assyrians look, as powerful as the Babylonians look, as powerful as Vladimir Putin looks, as powerful as other armies look, they're not in control of reality, that God is. And so Ezekiel sees these visions. He says this, as I looked, behold, and Ezekiel is famous for seeing the wildest visions, and it's full of visions. I'm just picking a couple of tame ones out. As I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud. Now, this is what he's communicating to the people in exile uh, that God has shown him. This is a revelatory vision. A brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire. No Babylonian king can do this. So you obviously already get the idea that, oh, we're talking about something powerful. And it was like gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of Four living creatures, see them again. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each one had four faces and each of them had four wings and their legs were straight and soles of their feet were like calves feet. They sparkled like burnished bronze. So this is imagery, they glowed. And under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands and the four had faces. Each one of them went straight forward. And the likeness of their faces, they had a human face, a lion, and the face of an ox and the face of an eagle. Oh, same thing, same symbols. They don't look the same, I mean, that's just, this is an image. You get the same symbols uh, in this story. And so, and their wings were spread out above 
Each creature had two wings that touched the wings of the other. Wherever the spirit would go, that's where they went. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire came forth lightning. This is all about power. I mean, think about everything in this, and you think, I am scared to death. This vision is like, whoa, never seen anything like this. I mean, the king of Babylon is nothing compared to this. It's all about power. And he goes on, he says, and then there came a voice from the expanse over their heads and they stood still and they let down their wings and above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne. He said, it looked like a throne and in appearance, it looked like sapphire. I mean, it was amazing. And seated above the likeness of the throne was something that had a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw like gleaming metal and the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And down had had the appearance from his waist was the appearance of fire and brightness all around. So what do you, images are you getting? It's like God cannot even be looked at. It's just like, whoa, this is bright. And so it's like the appearance of the bow, a rainbow in the sky. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. And listen to this. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He didn't say, I saw the Lord. I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What's he saying? He said, I couldn't even, this isn't even anything compared to God. This is like three degrees removed from God. And look how awesome it is. You see, what, what's this image saying? It's like, God is pretty awesome. And you couldn't even look at him. You're just looking at the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so you get this sense and he speaks and he said, son of man, I'm sending you to the people of Israel. These are a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And so what's, he's going to send a message to Israel, but the first thing is the vision is the message. No matter what you think has happened to you and how bad your fortunes are in the world, you're, you've been defeated and a lot of your relatives have been killed in the battle and here you are in Babylon, you're in exile. God is still the one pulling the strings in history. God is still the powerful force in the universe. So lest you think, and this is a really important message to us, because when we suffer misfortune or when we get anxious, when we get afraid, we start grabbing for life preservers, we start grabbing for answers. Well, that's what they were doing. They were like, well, what are we gonna do? And God's message is, I am the one who is powerful. Your solution is not a political solution. Your solution is me. And your solution is stop rebelling against me and come to me. Same message, but instead of emphasizing God's holiness, it emphasizes God's power because that's what they needed to hear. They needed to know that God really is in control. Well, Daniel is also uh, one of the exiles. This young man, Daniel, and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're also in Babylon. And Daniel also gets visions that he is telling to the people. He's in the government service. He's been, he's a 
basically a civil servant in training. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, gets these visions. And you know the story of Daniel. And Daniel interprets these visions for him. So Ezekiel's over here and he's telling him what God is seeing him to the people. Daniel's over here interpreting these visions for the king. He's speaking to the king and the people as well. So Nebuchadnezzar said, I had a dream and I want you to tell me what it was. Daniel says, well, I'll tell you what it was. He said, not me, but I serve a God who can tell you. You saw a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you in your dream. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was gold, and its chest and arms were silver, and its middle and thighs were bronze, and its legs were iron. But its feet were partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by a human hand out of the side of the mountain, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were crushed into pieces and just blew away in the wind so that not even a trace of them was left. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now he said, I'll tell you the interpretation. Who gave that dream? God gave that dream. And God told Daniel to tell him what it meant. What is that dream? Well, it's a dream about a statue. Let's go on. He has another dream. In the first year of King Belshazzar, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. This is the same message, two very different dreams. He said, I saw in my vision by night, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different. The first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, the wings were plucked off, was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast like the second one was a bear. Raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth and between its teeth, it was told, arise and devour much flesh. And then I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings and a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And then I saw this, a fourth beast, absolutely terrifying and exceedingly strong, and it had iron teeth. This is the iron in the statue. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from the other beasts, and it had 10 horns. So Daniel goes on. And he says, and I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, a human being looking. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, so think about this. So he's having these three, I'm putting these three visions here and then I'll tell you what they're about. But one, you get the idea that King Nebuchadnezzar has been given a vision of a statue and it means something. And then Daniel gets a vision of four beasts and they mean something. And then he gets a vision of the throne room. The ancient of days is God, but somebody looking like a human being came in and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. If you've been in our revelation class, it's not coincidental, those are three adjectives. To all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth 
concerning all this, and he told me and made known to be the interpretation of things. These four great beasts are four kings who will rise on the earth, but the saints of the Most High, saints, by the way, means holy ones, the holy people, the set-apart people, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So Daniel sees or interprets three apocalyptic, revelatory images. And the people at that time, remember Ezekiel is giving them a sense of God's sovereignty and how awesome he is. Daniel is actually getting a roadmap of the future. And so what you see here is on the left is the picture of the image. And on the right, you see the animals. And here is what this means. Now, obviously, this vision is happening here. But this is a roadmap of the kingdoms of the earth. I mean, we look back, we can see it. And sure enough, over the generations, as the Jewish people live, and one thing happens after another, they realize that, wow, this was exactly right, that Babylon ruled, Persia ruled, Greece ruled, and Rome. And so this is gold and silver and bronze and iron, that Rome was the empire that was the strongest of all. But then at the end, you get a vision that isn't for them, it's for you. And so what they realize is, what is this image saying? It says, not only is God sovereign, God is the one pulling the strings for all these empires. They serve his purposes. As powerful as they seem to you, they serve his purposes. I'm not saying they're good. I'm not saying they're righteous. I'm just saying they think they're serving their own purposes, but they are serving God's purposes. That's still true today. You and I live in the kingdom that came after Rome, and that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that will fill the whole earth and will never be overtaken. So God's people needed to hear about holiness. Then God's people needed to hear about God's sovereignty and that he is still in control. Well, the Persians conquer the Babylonians as time goes on. And in 538, Cyrus the Great lets them go back. And so they go back to Jerusalem. It's a mess. So with uh, the first people that go back rebuild a little shabby temple, but they do the best they can. And then Nehemiah, Ezra come back and reinstate the law and build the walls around Jerusalem. This is the tail end of the Old Testament. This is happening. And so the prophet Zechariah, he's one of the minor prophets, uh, sees visions of hope and encouragement. So what do the people need to know now? They, they need to know God called them to be holy, they didn't. They went into exile. God is all powerful and sure enough, Persia overcame Babylon just like he said that they would. But now the question is, can we ever be reconciled to God? Has he written us off? They need to know a message of hope. Zechariah sees, this is one of the most interesting visions. It's not apocalyptic in the sense that it's got wild visions. It's apocalyptic in the sense that you are now seeing the throne room of God. And in Jerusalem, the high priest was a guy named Joshua. Now stop and think about this for a minute. It would be tough to be the high priest, given that, yeah, I'm the high priest and I come from a line of people that went into exile because they were so faithless to you. And before that, uh, they actually got destroyed by the Assyrians and they don't even exist anymore. 
it's a little awkward saying, I came to represent the people before you, God. And they go, and God looks at you and goes, you gotta be kidding me. You know, you guys, you're not faithful. You're, you know, your predecessors haven't been faithful. And so you see this image in heaven and Zechariah says, here's what I saw. I saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That Satan is the accuser. This is Job all over. So Joshua's not literally standing there. He said, listen, I saw your representative, your spiritual representative, your high priest. I saw a vision of him standing there and Satan was standing there accusing him. And everything Satan said was true. That this is a faithless people. These are a people of unclean lips according to Isaiah. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. I have plucked this burning brand out of the fire. I have redeemed these people. I've saved these people. Being plucked out of the fire is like, you've been saved. You've been rescued. He said, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. What? Spiritually, all of the Israelites were filthy. They were not faithful. And they're all listening to this vision and they know what this means. They're like, yeah, I plead no contest. You're exactly right. Uh, that's why we're worried that are we done? Are you done with us? Is this it? Are we through? But watch what happens. And the angel said to those who were standing before, remove the filthy clothes from him. And he said to him, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure clothes. Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they did. And the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. What's he saying? He said, I am willing to take my people back. I will take away your iniquity. You can't. I'll take away your clothes. I will give you clean clothes. Make sense? Same vision. I want to fast forward now to the book of Revelation. You're going to see the same thing. This is Jesus now talking to some Christians in the first century who lived in the town of Sardis. He said, remember what you received. Keep it and repent. Keep turning back to me. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few people in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In other words, there are people in your church that have not turned to the world. They have been faithful. He says, and they will walk with me in white garments for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And so here you get the third major message that God is giving to his people. And this third message is the idea of redemption, of God's love, God bringing you back. Even when you have not been holy, even when you have gone into exile, into the world, that God is powerful and God loves you and he will bring you back. This story of these apocalyptic images that are given to them. They don't need to know the details. These kind of visions aren't big on details. 
you just get this overwhelming message. That's still true for us. In fact, that really came true in the person of Jesus Christ. Question? Does God still communicate with people through dreams? Does God still communicate with people through dreams? You know, some people think so. I mean, the text, first of all, the text is silent on this of the New Testament. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says, oh, and by the way, every now and then I'm gonna give you a dream and it's gonna be apocalyptic and you need to pay attention to it. Can God do that? Of course God can do that. I will tell you this, that God, God does those things. The same question is, does God still do miracles? God certainly can do what he wants and it is for God's purpose, not ours. That's my heartburn with big picture, and if I offend you, I'm sorry, but I'm a little skeptical of faith healers for this simple reason. God gives those gifts to serve God's purpose. And can he do it? Yes, he can. Sometimes I fear that we're serving human purposes, and I'm very skeptical of that. But if it serves God's purpose, it can be from God. I'm not really aware of anybody who's saying, hey, I saw a vision from God and this is the case. People have said that. People in the past have said, I saw a vision and the world's gonna end, you know, on October of 1973. Yeah, well, okay, maybe that wasn't from God. Maybe that was Mexican food. I don't know, but bottom line, it didn't happen, all right? And the one thing God said, you can tell a prophet, does it happen or does it not happen, right? But I would say this, if indeed there are dreams that God is sending, it's to build up his people. Not to rule his people, it's not to tell his people, oh, by the way, you should believe something different than what I put in the Bible. The God's word, the Bible is a revelation to us. It is God revealing spiritual things. We wouldn't know uh, to trust in Jesus for salvation. We wouldn't know any of that if God hadn't revealed it to us. That's his great revelation. So uh, call me just mildly skeptical, but can God do it? Yes, God could do that. That's, that's a great question. But again, I check everything back to the Bible because I know that's God's word. And if it's consistent, then maybe so. If it's not, definitely not. As the New Testament says, test the prophets to see if their message is from God. What are you gonna test it against? I'm gonna test it against the revelation of Jesus Christ. Great question. So you get this idea, and I wanna stop here because I want you see a vision in the book of Revelation. This is John, 90-ish AD. And here is one of the closing visions. This is uh, the judgment, the great white throne. But I just want you to see what is this saying. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is the end of the world. The material universe is done. Earth and sky fled away. And I saw the dead, great and small. Wait a minute, materialists go, what are you talking about? You're dead, you're gone. No, you're not. There's a piece of us that is eternal. And so this is God revealing. Let me tell you the big story here. Let me tell you what's really real. He says, and then books were opened and the dead were judged according to what they had done. And even death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. Then death itself and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this idea is that God has remade the entire order. And so you, you start with the Garden of Eden, and in chapter 21 and 22, you're gonna see another Garden of Eden. 
And so God brings humanity full circle. It is the story of redemption. God made what was good and we made it bad. And yet, God called us to be, this is the story of the Israelites. This is the story of us. What are those three big things in the vision? God said, I'm holy and you need to be holy. What does that mean? We tend to think holy is, oh, well, I gotta act good. You know, I gotta be like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. Well, I'm all in favor of you being like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, but that's not what being holy means. Being holy means being set apart. In other words, I'm not a creature of this world. I'm actually following Christ instead of fame, pride, money, power, all the things that the God of this world wants me to follow. I'm different. Why am I different? Well, partly because I act different, but why do I act different? Because I'm following somebody different. Does that make sense? It's not how you act that makes you set apart, it's who you're following. How you act is just a, it's a follow on from that. It's an inevitable side effect of who you're following. You get God's holiness, a recognition that no matter what happens to you in life, God is sovereign. As powerful as the forces of this world seem to be, God is actually the one that's moving all of history where he wants to go. Romans 8, 28, you really need to hold on to this. This is the ultimate declaration of God's sovereignty. Romans 8, 28 says, for God works all circumstances together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? That that means, that's so profound, you should just meditate on that for the next week. I mean, it's really worth it. First of all, it says, wait a minute, you're telling me that no matter what happens, God is powerful enough and big enough to work it for good? Even though it was meant for evil to me and even though I may even die. Spoiler alert, you will. My point is though that it's saying God is so powerful, he can even take suffering, pain, evil, all those things, and turn them to good. Now that's powerful. He says, and he, he is able to do that. He is powerful enough to do it, but it's not just that he's powerful enough, he's willing to do it. He not only is powerful enough to take everything in your life and bend it for good, he loves you enough to do that. What do I need to do? Follow him. He has my allegiance. You're saved by grace through faith. Be faithful. That will make you holy. It will make you different. It will make you set apart. But you see God's power in that. You see God's holiness. And you see God's love. It's not just that God is powerful enough to work all things for good in your life. He actually will because he loves you. That may be even the more amazing part. If I were that powerful and humanity looked like little ants to me, would I bother? It's, I can't decide which is greater. Christians have argued through time. This is the fundamental Calvinist point of view. is that God's most important or most, ba not most important, most basic attribute. I mean, God is love, God is kind, God is powerful, God is the way, the truth, and the life. Everybody I'm telling you about is Christian and believe all those things, but they would say, what's God's most essential characteristic? His sovereignty. That's one of the hallmarks of Calvinism. It doesn't say God doesn't love you. It just says, you know, when you get right down to it, the most important thing to know about God is he's powerful enough to work all things for good in your life. 
Well, the Arminian side, let's just say Wesleyan, that's more what we know, they say, yeah, he is sovereign. But you know what? The most amazing thing about God is not that he's powerful, it's that he actually loves us. And love is the most essential element of God's character. And therein lies the whole Calvinist-Arminian debate, in a nutshell, right? Everybody thinks God is powerful, God is loving. One side says it's his sovereignty that's his controlling property. The other side, it's his love. I'm gonna settle this right now. I'm gonna give you my personal opinion. Neither of the above. It's God's holiness. If the angel says holy, I say he's holy. I'm joking about that. But I'm serious about his holiness. But you know, sometimes I think we maybe miss it by arguing about this, but God is sovereign. And God calls us to be holy because he is holy and he loves you enough to exercise his sovereignty for you. That should send you every day out into the world with a smile on your face. And I know you may say, but my circumstances aren't very good. Yes, but you serve a God who can work all circumstances together for good. That's what God was trying to communicate fundamentally to Israel. That's what all apocalyptic visions are really about, is to give you an image of his power, give you an image of his holiness, and to give you an image of how much he loves you. And that's what all these crazy visions are really trying to say. Not so hard, right? Well, next time, I wanna take a little different story, and I wanna talk to you about a prophet who didn't actually prophesy he didn't have apocalyptic visions. He didn't really have a message from God. He had a complaint to God. And the whole book of this prophet is his call to the customer complaint line in heaven. And so next week, I want you to meet Habakkuk, the guy who was bold enough to complain to God. I'll see you next time.